Dear Father, I'm thankful, Father, for this place. I'm thankful that we have a roof over our heads and a a room that's so well-suited to what we want to do in serving the body through the teaching of of your word. Thank you, Father, for this blessing. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that uh, I'm joined tonight by men and women who have a a like-minded desire to sit at your feet. It's an encouragement to me, Father, and I thank you for encouraging me with an audience because as any teacher would know, if you sit and you prepare and you put your heart into what you think you're supposed to do, it's a gratifying experience when there's others who want to hear what you've done and and enjoying you in the in the enjoyment of it. And thank you, Father, that you encourage teachers with an audience of students. And likewise, thank you, Father, that students may be encouraged by men and women who teach the Bible and make a life's effort at that, Father. And uh, in all the ways that others are serving around us in this body, I thank you for that uh, example as well. And uh, just for the joy of all that happens when people serve one another. Turning to the text, Father, thank you for the wisdom that you provided in it. Thank you that you could reveal it to me and show me things that you cared for those in this room to hear and for others like them. Thank you, Father, that this uh, wisdom is directing our hearts toward obedience and toward a love for you and for your word and for all that you're doing through and for and by your people, Israel. And, Father, help us to use this in our own walk, as remote as these things may be to us in some context. Father, I pray that they would be immediately relevant, though, and in specific ways as you apply it in our heart. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 20, folks. Tonight, we're in a new section uh, of the book of Ezekiel, and that's a big thing to celebrate, because in a long study like this, it's really nice to have these mile markers to help us understand when we're getting into something new. And because it's new, I think it's appropriate for us to begin with a review of the structure of the book. Now, some of this review is not review for you, because I did this at an earlier point in the study before I was teaching it here. But all the more reason why I should give you some of that review. You can divide the book of Ezekiel into two halves. Chapters 1 through 23 are the first half, and it consists of four long prophecies in those chapters. They all deal with the same basic topic, though, with the coming destruction for the city of Jerusalem. That's where we've been, and still are for a little longer. And as you can expect, those prophecies are all doom and gloom, for the most part, because they deal with something very serious, with judgment. The section we're doing tonight, or starting tonight, is the last of those four prophecies in the first half of the book. That's chapters 20 through 23. We'll do 20 tonight. We got 21, 22, 23, and we're done. Then we'll move into the second half of the book. Uh, In chapter 24, and all the way to the end of the book, in chapter 48, you have the second half of this book, and the numbers almost reflect that perfectly. The second half of the book consists of quite a few more prophecies. Rather than four, the second half of the book has ten. And all of these prophecies are related to the end times and to the coming kingdom that's promised to Israel. So obviously you can tell by that topic that the second half of the book is considerably more upbeat than the first half of the book. And that's intentional, I think, as God has designed it. He's got a a story to tell Israel that is both immediate and negative for the sake of those who were in exile, but in the long term, it's glorious and, and redeeming for Israel. And he wants them to see the second half of the story uh, so that they have the full picture. More importantly, though, for us, it's the part of Ezekiel that we're most interested in, and that is that second half, because all of the second half of the book, from chapters 24 and onward, is future state, even still now. So all that we're studying through chapter 23 is history, And all that we're going to study from chapter 24 and onward is the future. So we sit in a period of history that lands squarely between chapters 23 and 24. 
So we're coming up on that division, which is what makes this this, uh, transition so interesting. And it's for the reason alone that we're looking at future events in the second half of the book, that it's obviously going to be the most fascinating for us. It includes things like how God is going to handle Israel's historical enemies in that time and in that place, uh, how he's going to deal with countries like Egypt and, and the like. It also looks at the future blessings for the nation of Israel in the kingdom. Uh, it especially emphasizes the return of Israel to being the chief nation on the earth, in their land, served by the other nations, and so on. And maybe most of all, the, the most interesting thing of it is that we get in, an in-depth look at the temple that is going to occupy part of Jerusalem, part of the, the nation of Israel in that day. And of course, right up front, the question we have to address when we get there is, why is there a temple in the kingdom? We'll do that. And then lastly, at the very end of of that second half, we get a little geographical tour of the kingdom, some of the topography of the land. All right, that's what we have to look forward to. But first, we need to finish the first half of the book in chapters 20 through 23. Tonight, we move into chapter 20, which begins the final prophecy concerning Jerusalem. And even though we've heard a lot about this already, this section offers some interesting new things, and it starts to bleed into the second half. The Lord begins to foreshadow some of the things we're going to learn in the second half of the book. So the topic actually begins to move out into the the next phase already. It begins tonight, though, with a history lesson of sorts. It's centered on Israel's evil tendencies and the Lord's righteous response. It's centered on their wilderness experiences in the time of the Exodus. And it draws a comparison between those experiences and what's going on now in Babylon. And I think you're going to find this fascinating. There's some things here that are new, I'm sure, for everyone. There are also a couple of interesting sub-themes. I'm just naming them now so you'll see them when we get through the text tonight. Uh, There is a section we're going to do tonight that talks about the coming tribulation. And there is a section tonight that talks about the kingdom that will immediately follow. So that's where I was just saying, you're going to bleed a little into the second half of the book even now. So let's begin. There's a brief opening part here where God just sets the scene. So let's do that. Ezekiel 20, verse 1. Now in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Do you come to inquire of me? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. All right, as I taught on the very first lesson of Ezekiel, and this is going back obviously to before we started in this room, but online, if you listened, in the very first lesson on Ezekiel, I told you that the prophet is known in part for his precision in dating his prophecies. These dates are critical in his case because they prove that he was a trustworthy prophet. How so? Well, because he has this two-sided nature to his book. In the first half of the book, he speaks about events that were very near-term, very near-term, and then when he gets to the second half of the book, he speaks about things that are so far in the future, they're still in our future, even now, after 2,500 years. So what God did is he ensured that those early prophecies were precisely dated as to the date they were given, so that as those near-term events came to pass, shortly thereafter, within a year or two or three, there was evidence that the prophecy came before the event. And in that way, it was demonstrated that he was accurate and he was a prophet to be trusted. God was speaking through him concerning those near-term events. And of course, as a near-term event is validated, you now have good reason to trust his long-term predictions also. That's how a prophet is often validated in Scripture. He'll have a near-term prophecy and then he'll have long-term prophecies. The near-term is there so that his audience of his day has reason to trust what he's saying. 
And then the long-term ones are really more the focus in most cases. That's the situation we have here. Now, in the case of this fourth prophecy, he dates his revelation to the summer of 591 B.C., which was the seventh year of Zedekiah's reign. Remember, Zedekiah is that final king ruling in Jerusalem who's about to be deposed when the last wave of Babylon's soldiers come in and destroy the city. So he's sitting on the throne right now, but he doesn't have much longer. In fact, his reign lasted a total of 11 years. So he's sitting right now with about four years left on the throne. Four years or so before the attack that we know is coming. That's the date of this moment. And it's been 11 months by this date. It's been 11 months since Ezekiel received the prior prophecy, the third one in the book. That one began in chapter 8. So we've been, that's been going on for a while as the study has progressed to this point. So from 8 to 19 was one prophecy. That happened 11 months earlier. And like the third prophecy, the one we're starting tonight comes as a result of an inquisition by the elders of Israel. You may remember in that prior one that as Israel sat in Babylon in exile, the people remained segregated in a place called Tel Aviv, a settlement. They maintained their lifestyle there. They were in captivity, but they were kind of in a little encampment. And in that encampment, they lived and had shops and had homes, and they, they kind of set up a little world of their own in that space. And they also had elders. They had those within the tribes who would rule over the people in that space. So periodically, as we've seen, these elders come to meet with Ezekiel. We don't hear a lot about what they say, but we can assume some things based on what God says in response. And the apparent uh, interest of the elders this time is to come complaining about the predictions that Ezekiel is giving them. Uh, In verse 1, it says, Certain elders came to inquire of the Lord. And at first, that word choice in English makes it sound like these guys have some very sincere interest. They're, They're coming for clarification. They have a question. All right, but if you look at the Lord's response, you can tell they didn't come with honest intentions. Because the Lord tells Ezekiel in verses 2 and 3, I want you to tell these guys, they have no right to inquire of me. And when you look at it from that perspective, based on the context, it's evident that what the Lord is saying is, these elders ought not judge me. They have no right to come and inquire in the sense of judging. They've made some assessment, some judgment of what God is doing, of what he's saying he's going to do through Ezekiel. And they think it's wrong. They think his plans are evil. And they don't like it. And so they've come back to challenge it with Ezekiel. And so in that sense, they inquire. And in verse 4 now, and onward, the Lord tells Ezekiel, here's how you're going to respond to these yahoos who think they know better than I do how I should be treating my people. And he reminds them of their history as a way of explaining what's coming. Look at verse 4. He says, Will you judge them, son of man? Make them know the abominations of their fathers, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob, and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, on that day I swore to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt and into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. I said to them, Cast away, each of you, the detestable things of his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me, and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them, to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt, and I brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes, and I informed them of my ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he will live. 
I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, before whose sight I had brought them out. Also I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands, because they rejected my ordinances. And as for my statutes, they did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart continually went after their idols. Yet my eye spared them, rather than destroying them, and I did not cause their annihilation in the wilderness. All right, so there's a history of the abominations of the fathers of Israel. So in other words, what the Lord has begun to say to Israel through the elders, or to the elders rather, is that he will vindicate himself before his people by reminding them how we all got where we are now. That is, in the situation that Israel finds itself. And the story begins in an interesting way. And I hope you notice the details. I have a suspicion, though, that if you did what I did the first time I read this, you may have confused something. Because as the story begins, he starts to relate how prior generations of leaders in the nation of Israel systematically weakened the people in their obedience. And it begins in a very familiar place, in the Exodus story. But there are some interesting details here that you do not find in the Exodus story that tell us details of things that happened that you wouldn't have known had you only read Exodus. First, the Lord briefly recaps how he established Israel and brought them down to Egypt. We know this story, right? How he promised Abraham that his descendants would be uh, captives, slaves, servants to another nation for 400 years and so on. He kept that promise and he kept the promise that said, after that time in captivity, I will bring them out. All right? But in the course of that experience, the leaders of Israel caused the people to rebel against the very Lord who was in the process of carrying out all those promises. And he says in the text that he responded by barring that first generation from entering the promised land. We know that from the Exodus story, right? Nevertheless, that punishment didn't bring Israel to an end. They continued in a new generation to enter into the promised land. That's a story you could have told me, I hope. We all know the story. In fact, we've, we've probably all seen the movie. That's how we mostly know it. I want you to take a second look at the details he just gave us, though, because you may have missed something. First, notice how the Lord reminds Ezekiel that he initiated the relationship he had with Israel. So he chose Israel. They didn't choose him. And God extended promises to Israel, giving opportunity for them to receive blessings in that relationship. So God has dealt graciously from Israel from the start. First thing to notice. Second thing to notice, he did all these things as a matter of his word. Notice in verse 5, and again verse 6, and again verse 15, he says he swore to Israel. He swore to Israel. That repetition emphasizes the Lord's decrees were certain, they were sure, and the Lord was going to be as trustworthy as His Word is. No one can indict the Lord's faithfulness to do what He said. In fact, He said, I swore to bring them blessings, but He said, I also swore to bring them judgment for their offenses against Me. So the Lord does both things according to His Word, but you notice He didn't override the blessings with the judgment. That is to say, in the end, He preserved them against annihilation. So He found ways to judge them that wouldn't counteract His promise to ultimately bless the nation. And that's where He kept a remnant. That's the second thing to know. God has acted according to His Word faithfully, both in blessing and in judgment. Third, 
Notice, he says, Israel has done nothing but rebel against the Lord's care and instruction. And the Lord says that rebellion began, and here's the part you may not have noticed. He says that rebellion began even while they were in Egypt. Notice in verses 6 through 8, he recounts how he warned the people not to chase after Egyptian gods while they were staying in the land. He's referring to the time that they were in Egypt under Joseph, while they were living as free people in Goshen. You remember the story? You know, they didn't show up on day one and get made slaves. They had a period of time under Joseph's rule where they had the best of the land. They were free. They operated in their own space up in the northwestern corner of the land of Egypt called Goshen. And they were pretty much left alone by the Pharaoh. And during that time, God says, and we don't have this recorded in Exodus, but we see it here, that God had told them, do not be tempted into idol worship as you live in Egypt, looking at the Egyptian gods that are around you. But then notice in verse 8, the Lord says, they didn't listen to his word while they were in Egypt. They did not forsake Egypt's idols. And so what did he do? He says he poured his wrath out on his people Israel while they were still in Egypt. The story we have in Exodus picks up after that moment. If you go back to the Exodus story, at the very beginning of that story in chapter 1, you find no specific mention of God judging his people for idolatry while in Egypt. Or do you? Notice this in Exodus 1.6. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. All right, so that's the story we all know. Israel prospered, made the Pharaoh jealous. After Joseph died, a new Pharaoh comes on. He gets jealous. He gets threatened. He enslaves them, hence their time in captivity. But you know what you just learned from Ezekiel? You learned that that enslavement was not merely the result of the changing political winds of Egypt. That in fact, the Lord testifies in Ezekiel, he was at work behind the scenes to bring his people into slavery. And why would he inflict slavery upon his people while they were in Egypt? First, it was an outpouring of his wrath against the sin of idolatry, directly in defiance of his word. And then secondly, Israel's captivity had the effect of isolating them from the rest of the Egyptians, causing them to turn away from idolatry. So the captivity served both as punishment and as a corrective action to stop Israel from chasing after the false gods that were in Egypt. Which leads us to the next point of my observation chain. I'm going to summarize it for you in a minute, so if you've already forgotten the other ones, don't worry. But the next point of observation is in verse 9, the Lord says, He takes this action for the sake of His name among the nations. That is, he has made himself, he has chosen to make himself known to the world through his relationship with Israel. And the nations of the world then were to come to know of God by observing what he said to Israel, how he dealt with them, and how they responded in worship to him. That was the plan. So when Israel turns its back on the living God who has graciously revealed himself to them and blessed them, God has to act else his name be profaned among the nations. I mean, he couldn't let idolatry stand unchallenged, for not only would it destroy his people over time, which is another issue all of its own. I mean, if you don't have Israel, you don't have a Messiah coming. 
So there's a problem just in that alone. But it also profanes his name and reputation before the other nations who observe this outcome. They observe the idolatry of Israel, the disobedience of Israel. What would it say to them about this God of Israel if they were allowed to do that and nothing ever happened? Then the only conclusion you would make is that the God of Israel is no more or less powerful than any God of any other nation that happens to turn from one to the next and so on. I mean, ask yourself this. What do you conclude about a parent who stands by idly while his toddler or her toddler destroys things in a department store? What, what do you, you make assumptions about the parenting, don't you? For better or worse, you make conclusions. In a similar sense, if the Father in heaven is disrespected by his children in this egregious way, it says something about him to others. And God says, my name will not be profaned that way among the nations. So, in the points I just outlined, including that little bit of history that we just learned... From, from the Exodus period, you get a pattern. And the pattern repeats itself three times in history. This is the first. And here's the pattern. Let me summarize it for you. First, the Lord extends His grace to Israel. He, he establishes His people out of nothing, in the first case. Uh, uh, that is, out of a man and a woman who were barren. He makes something out of nothing. But beyond that, He makes covenants with them. He extends promises of great blessing to them. He later fulfills aspects of those covenants. And at all times in His relationship, He's extending grace to this people that had no claim to it, certainly. And He initiates every term that defines their relationship. First, that's the, the start. Secondly, He gives His people His word which includes warnings against them going after other gods. Idolatry is always his preeminent concern in his word because the very purpose of Israel's existence was that they might testify to who the true living God is. So of all the things they could do wrong, the very worst they could do wrong is idolatry. What's the first commandment? And it shows you how important that is to God. So the very worst thing they could do is chase after other gods because it ruins everything else that God had planned for that nation. Notice at the end of verse 7, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God. Emphasizing that is his first concern in this relationship. But if Israel were allowed to go after other gods, they cease being Israel. They just become like every other pagan nation. Israel's relationship with Yahweh is their defining characteristic and their reason to exist. And then it says, if Israel, uh, going on from there, if you had Israel disappear, now you've got a bigger problem. You've got the seed promise that was made for Abraham and would ultimately arrive at Messiah, you have the seed promise now threatened. So God's chief concern is that they not chase after false gods. So number one, they get blessings from God. Number two, they get instructions and warnings from God as a protection. That leads to point three, they rebel. And if they rebel, if they go after false gods, he has to take action against them for his namesake. The Lord's response would be, as he's told them in his law, that they would see a penalty to the third and fourth generation of exile. Exile was the appointed judgment for God's people should they go after idols. Uh, they would see a penalty outside the land. And it wouldn't just be for that current generation, of course. It's going to have to take a while. There are going to be several generations of Israel set outside the land. That's number three. Fourth, the penalty has always two outcomes. It brings wrath against sin, which is just penalty of its own, and it purges idolatry from the people so that it will put an end to the problem. Each time the nation sins in idolatry, each time they get set outside the land in this pattern that we're describing, the expelling of God's people always involves an outpouring of wrath that results in the death of many. But the remnant survives, 
And it eventually returns to the land, and as it does, it comes back absent idolatry, at least for a time. So the cycle is complete in that respect. You have God starting the cycle by extending grace, moving through all the steps I just described, and when you get to the very end of that process, what you find is, here again, God extending grace, bringing His people back into the land, absent idolatry, a remnant surviving. Alright, that's your cycle. You could draft that. I could have put a big, you know, I didn't have a way to put anything on a screen, otherwise I would have, but you can write that in a little circle yourself. It's just those simple steps. Alright, and he does all of this. Why? You can put in the center of that circle the why for his namesake. Right? For his namesake. Because his relationship with Israel defines him to the world. That is, the world that doesn't have his word. The world that does, doesn't know anymore. Alright? So, the Lord does these things for the sake of his name, and therefore he cannot be persuaded otherwise. No group of elders are going to come and sit at the prophet and say to him anything at all that could change God's plan, because that pattern is centered on his namesake, and there's nothing more important to him than his name. Even in the Psalms it says that he he values or he, he holds his name even above his word. Or the other way around, he says his word is above his name. But after that, his name is the most important thing. All right, so that's the pattern. Why did I go through that? Because the rest of this chapter shows you that pattern two more times. And they get increasingly interesting as you go. Here's the second example. This is the one you thought I was doing the first time. Verse 18. I said to their children, now these are the children of those that were in Egypt. I said to their children in the wilderness, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers or keep their ordinances or defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes. And keep my ordinances and observe them. Sanctify my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Now, before I go any further in that, just as a quick check to see if you're following me, which group is he talking about now? These are the ones who leave Egypt. These are the children of those who were in Egypt before slavery and did all the wrong things that put them into slavery. And then their children, I'm not saying this is the very next generation. The Bible doesn't use the word children that literally. You know, the fathers and the children are just a general reference, okay? So the children in this case refer to the offspring, maybe one, two, or three generations later, doesn't matter, the offspring of those who were in slavery in Egypt. The ones who came out in the Exodus. These are the ones who followed Moses. And he says to them, don't follow the statutes of your fathers who worshipped idols in Egypt. Remember, this is a story we've never heard before unless you study Ezekiel, because it's not captured in Exodus. It's not recorded in Exodus. Exodus picks up right here in about verse 20 or so, at the point where God is preparing to send his people out of Egypt. And now he's telling us, as I sent that other generation out, verse 20, he says, I told them, sanctify my Sabbaths. They shall be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But... The children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to observe my ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he will live. They profane my Sabbaths, so I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. So that's the group that got in trouble in Numbers 13 and 14, if you know the story, in the wilderness. That's where Moses interceded and said, don't kill them. You know, when God says, I'm going to wipe the mountain, start over with you. And he says, no, no, don't do that. So that's this scene. Verse 22, he says, But I withdrew my hand. That's a reference back to Moses' intercession. But I withdrew my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. All right, now, and so we know the story now, right? Uh, this is the, the group that came out. He says, he, look at the pattern here again. First of all, 
uh, in grace, in mercy. He's going to bring them out of Egypt. He's going to bring them out of slavery. Despite their fathers engaging in idolatry, despite the fact that he put them into slavery to begin with, he still has a way of bringing them out. He sends them a deliverer. All right? Uh, then, what's the second step? Give him his word. Verse 18, he says, I told them, follow my statutes. Here are my ordinances. Don't follow what your parents did. And in this case, he goes a step further with this generation because we know when they get out, he gives them the Mosaic Covenant. All right, so for the first time in the history of the people of Israel, they don't just have some idea of what God wants. He gives them a covenant with a law in it, the details of which spell out Sabbaths and all the rest. That covenant gave them specific laws and statutes, so now they know explicitly how to obey the Lord. Their forefathers, we know they heard something, but it's also obvious they didn't have the full measure of what these, uh, this generation got. So they're getting an even more clearly marked path for how God has asked them to be obedient. That in itself is another measure of God's grace to them because it is grace when God spells out your path of success and leaves nothing un, uh, unclear, right? So what's the next step in the pattern? They rebel, all right? Instructions are immediately followed by rebellion, okay? And you hear of the rebellion in this situation in Exodus and also in Numbers, as I mentioned. You find that between Exodus and Numbers, as they wandered in that initial stage of leaving the the, the nation of Egypt, they test the Lord ten times. The number ten in Scripture is uh, symbolic of testimony. So they had a testimony, but in the negative sense. They had a testimony of disobedience, rebellion, grumbling, complaining, at all times, not trusting the Lord. You've led us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, right? That was sort of the underlying theme. And that testing, when you get to 10, God says, okay, I've had it up to here. That's it. No more. No more patience. And that's when he's ready to say, we're done with this generation. As I heard in the text, he says, I withheld my wrath because of Moses' intercession, but really because his own name would have been damaged had he done it. And yet, because they have pushed their limit, there's still a consequence. And rather than destroy them in the wilderness, this is the way I like to remind people how God works. He never changes his mind. So there was no change in the plan. All God did was change the timeline. They still died. He just did it slowly. That was the only difference. Had he done it fast, people would have said, you brought him out of here to kill him. He did it slowly. Everyone says, oh, they deserved it. It's the same outcome. He just did it differently. All right. So he, he still takes an action which defends his honor, sets the precedent, and moves the plan in motion down these steps. What would be the next step? Next step is you restore a remnant back into the land, absent idolatry, right? But in the case of this second example, the plan goes a little longer. Okay, The plan of uh, wrath goes a little longer. Look at verse 23. He says, also, oh, there's more to it. Also, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them among the lands because they had not observed my ordinances but had rejected my statutes and had profaned my Sabbaths and their eyes were on the idols of their fathers. Now notice that. Here's again, here again, this is insight we're gaining from the prophet that's not necessarily captured in Exodus which is not uncommon in Scripture. That's why you have 66 books and not one. But in this case, what we're learning is part of what they were doing as they followed Moses, it wasn't merely that they were complaining. And if you've heard preaching on the Exodus story, and it's sort of limited to that heart attitude problem of we're just too too busy complaining, that's scratching the surface of what was going on. 
The chief concern God had for them, the reason they're getting these punishments, is because they violated rule number one. The hearts of those who left Egypt were idolatrous. They were idolaters. And as a result, though they complained about leeks and garlic and the, and the like, at the root of that heart concern was that they didn't trust God, they trusted the idols back in Egypt. All right. So as a result, he says, they're going to die, this generation will die in the, the wilderness. We know that's how he spent his wrath on them. But he continues the judgment for generations to come. He says, that's not the extent of my judgment in this case. I am now taking my judgment further. Remember what I said earlier, the judgment that comes for idolatry is what? It's exile. The problem with this generation is they're already exiled. They're in the wilderness. So if God's going to carry out the punishment of exile on Israel as needed to purge them of idolatry, He has to delay that for another generation. He actually stretches it out. Now, not that that future generation wasn't guilty also. They very much were. The point is, He didn't have the ability or the the way He orchestrated the plan, I should say. He didn't create the plan in such a way that He carries it out immediately. He uses it to stretch out the punishment. All right? So that judgment continues for generations to come. He says, in what I just read, he says he gave Israel statutes that were not good. Look, verse 25. He gave Israel statutes that were not good. In other words, what he's saying is, he allowed Israel to fall prey to the world's statutes, not his statutes per se, but he allowed them to have the statutes they wanted, which were to follow the life and the rules and the lifestyle of Canaanites. And in that way, they engaged in pagan idolatry. So think of it this way, just as the Lord used Pharaoh and his political concerns to imprison Israel in Egypt as a punishment for Israel, so also the Lord used the Canaanites to discipline his people by letting them chase after those idols and see the penalty of their ways as a a way of bringing discipline to them. Those statutes, he says, were not good. They did not let Israel live, he says. I think he's referring there to the pagan practices that Israel adopted that include child sacrifice. It was, In other words, God's law leads to life. The law he let them chase after led to death while they were in the land. All right? Then there'll be a time in which he will regather the nation that has been dispersed in that scattering, which would bring us back to the final step in that plan. Here's the pattern again. I want you to notice. God's grace, His revelation, Israel's disobedience, then His judgment, then His restoration, all for the sake of His name. Now look at the pattern so far. Israel has experienced two circumstances in what He's already revealed, in which the nation went through this entire pattern from start to finish. One went relatively quickly, in the sense that it lasted a few generations in Egypt. The second one stretched out longer because it extended all the way until the time of Ezekiel now in the case of the Babylonian captivity. That is actually the finishing out of the second pattern as God has designed it. What was the outcome of those patterns? Well, in the case of the first, it led to the second. In the case of the second, it won't fully address idolatry. It does cut idolatry back. The nation doesn't go after false gods in the same way, but they're not following the Lord It didn't put them on the right track in respect to the Lord. And now you have Ezekiel sitting in exile with with his elders, and they're all going back and forth over, why are we here and what does this all mean? And Ezekiel's explaining to them, you're experiencing judgment in this pattern for the third time. All you have to do is look at the history of your own people, and you'll recognize where you are on that clock of pattern, of that cycle, and that you still have a restoration coming, but you better learn the lesson, or you'll be in the cycle again, right? 
So, in other words, the elders had no reason to inquire of God. You just have to look at your own history, and you'd know what's going on. That's the point God's making to the elders. But the judgment for this third turn is a lot worse than it was in the first turn's case, because now it's a lot longer, and it involves this scattering around many nations, not just a captivity in one. And it started even before the nation entered the land under Joshua. He wiped out a generation in the wilderness. Then he brought them into the land. Then he let them suffer under the Canaanite influence because that was part of the judgment. Then he sends them off into captivity from Assyria and then later into Babylon. It's all part of the judgment phase of this cycle. But eventually, if I'm following the cycle properly, what's still got to happen? There's still the last step, right? So where is step five in this pattern when it comes to our Babylonian exiles, when do they experience restoration? When do they experience a return of God's grace? Well, you might assume that their restoration occurred when the exiles were allowed to return after the 70 years. If you know the story of how this turns out, after 70 years, Jeremiah's prophecy comes true that they're released and allowed to go back to the land. Cyrus of Persia says, go back whoever will, build your temple. That, that's when Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah and all those guys get involved and bring back a a little ragtag remnant of Israel to rebuild the temple and the city. You know that story, I hope. That's not the restoration. And the reason it's not the restoration is it doesn't follow the pattern. This is where the pattern gets so helpful. If you follow the way the pattern worked in the first two cases, that is, the group that was in Egypt and the group that came into the wilderness, if you follow what happened in both of those cases, you get a pattern that you have to see again in this case, or it hasn't happened yet. So how do I know that the restoration has not come yet? How do I know it wasn't the return of the exiles after 70 years? Or for that matter, how do we know it wasn't 1948 or 1967? Well, how do we know when restoration has truly happened on that cycle I'm describing? Well, two ways. First, Israel's presence in the land has waxed and waned over the course of all of these centuries since they were taken into exile under during Ezekiel's time. In fact, it's been 2,500 years since they went into Babylon. And over that 2,500 years, there's been long periods when they were out of the land, yes, but there's also been long periods when they were in the land. And they keep going in and out, right? But those partial and temporary occupations of their land cannot qualify as the restoration because it doesn't fit the pattern. Remember, the third cycle has to mirror the other two, right? And in the other two, Israel has always seen two things accompany True, full restoration. First, they're always restored as a complete people. Always. A whole nation, no one missing. For example, the remnant didn't just return in the case of those who were in Egypt, right? In the first example, you have the entire nation in a free state. Then they were all taken into captivity. And when it was time to let them out of captivity, no one remained in Egypt. They all left. There was not half the nation saying, you know, we kind of like Egypt. We'll stay here. They all left. All right. How about the second example? The ones that were in the wilderness that couldn't go into the promised land because they rebelled, rebelled in the wilderness. Well, that generation all died, and the next generation all went in. No one stayed in the wilderness. Yes, there were the tribes that stayed on the east side of the Jordan, but they're in the land at that point. They're not still wandering. So in both of the first two cycles, when you hit the restoration point of the cycle, everyone who's Israel on earth is included in the restoration. That's clearly not happened, right? Second piece that has to be true, the people of Israel were always accompanied by the glory of the Lord in that moment of restoration. For example, the generation that departed Egypt, that had been released from slavery, they entered the wilderness accompanied by the glory of the Lord with a pillar of fire and cloud. 
And the second example, that is the generation that left the wilderness and went into the promised land, they were accompanied by the glory of the Lord in the tabernacle that was set up in the land when they entered. So the full restoration of this cycle always has two features, at least in the first two examples. All Israel is included, and the glory of the Lord is present with them. All right, so where does that leave Israel now when you think of this third turn of the wheel, as I call it? Well, first, no time since the Babylonian captivity has the entire population of Israel ever returned to her land. Never. When the exiles come back, it's just a little remnant. Uh, over the centuries that followed, a majority of the Jews actually stayed out the land, outside the land. That's where you get the term diaspora, or dispersion. right? And even today, with the modern state of Israel, as it's reemerged now in the world scene, only about half of all living Jews on earth live in Israel. And that's only been recent. In fact, it was just last year, as I'm told, that the population of Israel became the largest population of Jews on earth. Before that, it was New York City. So in 2015, the, the nation of Israel actually became the largest population of Jews on earth. Before that, they were not even in the majority. They were under, you know, second to New York. So the point is, we've certainly not gotten close to all Jews living in the land. Then secondly, the glory of the Lord has never returned to dwell among His people. If you followed this study from the beginning, you'll remember that the glory of the Lord had been resident in the temple that was built by Zerubbabel until, as Ezekiel reports it, until right before the city was captured by the Babylonians. And then the glory of the Lord departs from the temple, and it has never returned. So since God set Israel up to be taken captive by the Babylonians and begin this period of dispersion, the glory of the Lord has never come back to His temple. It did not come back into Zerubbabel's temple since it was rebuilt, and that became Herod's temple, and it never came in there. Um, obviously, Jesus walked into the temple, and in that sense, you might say the glory was there for a time. But He didn't go and sit on the mercy seat. He didn't come in and be received as king and then be able to act in His glory. That was denied Him. So, we're still waiting for the glory of the Lord to return to Israel. So if you don't have everybody and you don't have the glory, you haven't hit full restoration of the people in this cycle. So uh, when does this final example of the pattern I'm describing, when will it finally complete? To put it graphically, we have the, the cycle that happened for those who were in Egypt. We have the cycle for those who came out of Egypt. Now we have the cycle for those who were in the land of Israel and got sent out of the land for their idolatry. And we're stuck here on the judgment phase of that cycle, there's one more step in it, if it's to complete like the other two. It's the restoration step, but it requires two things that now seem virtually impossible. Every living Jew on earth in Israel, and the glory of the Lord reappearing there. So, how do we get to that point? Daniel, who was a contemporary of Ezekiel, who prophesied in Babylon while Ezekiel was alive, he told Israel in his book that this judgment was going to last a very, very long time. Many, many generations. In fact, he says in Daniel 2 and in Daniel 7 that this period of time that we're talking about will not complete and the restoration will not happen until the second coming of Messiah. Until Jesus' second coming. Which is why we're still waiting even now. So, what we're learning is the restoration that we're waiting for in this third turn is the kingdom. The way we get all Israel and the glory of the Lord is when the kingdom is set up on earth. So this third turn, and the number three is significant here because that's the number of God in the fullness of his Godhead acting, his authority in the Godhead. So God has said, I'm going to let this turn happen three times, but the third time is going to get us to the point where there'll never be idolatry in Israel again in their glorified state. 
So while the first two examples of this pattern only lasted a few generations in each case, this one is lasting thousands of years. So just as it began in a more dramatic fashion with the Babylonian army, it actually ends in a more dramatic fashion. And that's the piece I told you was coming tonight as we finish what I can do tonight. We're going to read another long section here and then finish on that. But we're going to look at what he says now to Ezekiel, to the exiles, about how that last step of restoration is going to be carried out. So I love this about the Lord in this case. He's got a hard story to tell these people, but he doesn't end it in bad news. He ends it on an upbeat note, so to speak, how this restoration actually gets carried out. Verse 27. He says, Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Yet in this your fathers have blasphemed me by acting treacherously against me. When I had brought them into the land which I swore to give them, then they saw every high hill and every leafy tree, and they offered there their sacrifices. There they presented the provocation of their offering. There also they made the soothing aroma, and there they poured out their drink offerings. Then I said to them, What is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and play the harlot after their detestable things? When you offer your gifts, when you cause your sons to pass through the fire, you are defiling yourselves with all your idols to this day. And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What comes into your mind? will not come about when you say we will be like the nations like the tribes of the land serving wood and stone as i live declares the lord surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out i shall be king over you i will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out and i will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples there i will enter into judgment with you face to face As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me, and I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. That section gives you a pretty good taste for how the Lord is going to bring about this restoration. It it, uh, kind of ironically starts with judgment again. But he begins by reminding the exiles that, you know, your forefathers got grace. I brought them into the land. I gave them the best of the land. But as they looked around, all they could see were high places. They could set up idol-worshiping altars. And they commenced to worship Canaanite gods. They offered sacrifices on those places. And the Lord says he confronted them through the prophets. He accused them of worshiping at Bamal, he says in verse 29. It's a pun in Hebrew. The Lord's mocking them by making a pun. The word Bama means high place, but it can also literally be translated, go where? Go where? And so, as the people said to themselves, let's go worship at Bama, which was the name of a high place, the Lord was asking, where are you going? Bama can be said, where are you going? The answer is, it's a rhetorical question, because the answer is, you're going nowhere. That is, you have a place of no significance. Nowhere. It's a nothing place. And in verses 30 through 31, he reminds them of the, of the worst things they did when they went there. Child sacrifice right at the top of the list. He says he will not be inquired of or that is found guilty of or judged by Israel. Instead, he says he will find them in his way. That is, they won't come to him. He will come to them. And he's going to come to them in his own way. And that turns now to the, to the topic of restoration. Beginning in verse 32, here's where we get to how the restoration will start. 
It will come in a day in the future, he says, when Israel's mind will no longer desire to be like other nations. And that was the heart of their problem. They wanted to be like the world. They rather have what they saw around them everywhere they went, whether that was Egypt, whether that was in the land of the Canaanites, and now going into today even, because we're in the third cycle now in present day life, you have Jewish people, mostly not religious, uh, even those who adhere to some Jewish cultural practices, it's of the minimalist kind. There's really no theology behind it that understands the truth of God. Um, what are they doing, though? They're mimicking what they see in the world. I mean, they, they seek after mysticism in the form of Kabbalah, or they, they seek after uh, other social justice or some other kind of, of outlet in which their humanity can seem somehow divine to them, and they begin to mix the two worlds. It's no different than Hinduism. It's no different than any other false religion. And I'm not saying Judaism is false. I'm saying the way Jews practice it, it's not biblical, right? It's a, it's a cultural thing. It's always, though, focused on the world rather than guided by God's word. Remember the history here. They wanted kings, not a theocracy. Why? Because everyone else has a king. They wanted high places to dot their landscape. Why? Because what we see in the countries around us, Canaanite nations around us, they got these great high places everywhere, these impressive altars on everywhere. They wanted them not just in their country, they wanted them in their own backyard. You know how that, you've seen that, people do this all the time, right? If there's some trend that's really cool in the world, we want our own version of it in our, in our backyard. Well, a little pond. We want a little, little putting range. We, whatever is kind of nice to have on a large scale, we want a mini version of it in our own house, which is fine. But in the case of idolatry, not fine. And what you see happening in Israel is they move from, in the case of Dan, they move from saying, well, we'll just do Yahweh worship in our own backyard to becoming Canaanite worship in the long run, and then high places everywhere because everyone's got to have their own altar. And it's this idea that if someone else has it, I want it. They look to the world, they didn't look to God. They desired to worship idols because that's what everyone else was worshiping. And when they looked at how they were worshiping those idols, they noticed that Canaanites did a lot of things with musical merriment and decadent feasts and dangerous rituals and sexual orgies, and that looked a lot more exciting than prayer and sacrifice in the temple. And so it became an attractive alternative for religion. But God says in a future day, they won't have those desires anymore. And paradoxically, he says that restoration begins with great wrath poured out on them. Verse 34. So part of how they turn their attention away from caring about the world is he makes the world so unpalatable, no one would want to have any part in it. I'll give you one guess how he does that. It's called tribulation. So in verse 34, the Lord promises that he will begin this process of restoration by regathering them. Okay, well, that's what we expect, right? That's the key thing, one of the two key things we need to see is a regathering of the nation. Sure enough, verse 34, he promises to regather the nation in her land. And as that begins to happen, we're moving in the right direction. Now, again, we're not talking about a partial regathering. This prophecy is only true when and if all Israel is present in her land. So certainly you could look at what's going on today and say it started you know, from 1948 to 67 and the like. Sure, that's, not, that's, that's legitimate. It's ongoing. But what that tells you is we're not there yet. But man, if it's been 2,500 years since these words were written, and now we're seeing the regathering that will then lead to what we know is going to follow, you get a sense of how close we have, we have to be to the end. right? So after 2,500 years, we're starting to see what he's saying here come to pass. We're just not there yet because the regathering requires 100%.
before the cycle is complete. But it's not initially for glory. In the initial stages of this regathering, it's to build the nation up for a point that then God will pour out wrath on them, he says. A period of judgment that will ultimately result in the completing of this process such that he purges Israel of rebellion, purges them of idolatry, he says. He says they're gathered by the mighty arm of God and then wrath is poured out on them, verse 34. And then I love this phrase, once they're in the land and God's entering into this final judgment, he says he's going to meet them face to face. I don't like those odds, personally. I mean, one-on-one, but the other one is pretty big. That's not a good situation. But the phrase, it, it... it has that sense of a personal reckoning. And that's the issue here. In other words, there's a dispute at, at issue here between God and Israel in relationship to the violations of a covenant that exists just between those two entities. This is not some problem with the world in general. This is not how God is dealing with sin in the world overall. The rest of the world is just collateral damage. The, the whole time of tribulation is for Israel to the outcome of completing this cycle such that he purges idolatry, preparing them for the kingdom. That's its whole purpose. If anybody ever asks you, why does tribulation even have to exist? That's your answer. It's all about Israel. And the fact that it brings the whole world into play, you just got your answer a minute ago for why God has to make the place a wreck to get what he wants out of Israel. So that they will no longer look at the world and desire what's in it. So that the world itself is no longer an attractive place. All they have left to cling to is what they had in the beginning, which is the grace of God. As the saying goes, there's no atheist in a foxhole. In a a sense, that's what this is about. Strip everything else away, and all I have, I'm at the end of myself, and so all I have left is God. And in the case of a Jew, they come back to the orthodoxy of their Jewish roots, to the true God. In fact, in verses... 36 through 37, the Lord says this is a personal accounting of Israel similar to the one that he carried out in prior generations who were in the desert when he met them in the wilderness and brought them to judgment. Again, this is further evidence that what's coming in this worldwide gathering is part of the pattern because he keeps referring back to the prior experiences and says it's going to be like that again. We're just seeing it on a whole new scale with what he has planned. All right, so in the case of the wilderness wanderings, he poured out judgment in the form of a 40-year death sentence plus a later period of, of dispersing. But, in the result, but the result of that judgment didn't fully purge them of idolatry forever. It didn't solve the problem. He's now going to the next level in this one, which will solve the problem. Okay? He says he's going to enter into judgment with them, verse 37. Notice at the end there he says, I'm going to bring them back into the bond of the covenant. I'm going to make them pass under the rod... What is that? I don't even have to tell you what that means. You, you can instinctively know what it means. What does it mean to make someone pass under the rod? Yeah. You know, spank them, essentially, with a rod, but it's metaphoric in their case. The point is they're going to go through a period of discipline, and the effect is it brings them back into the bond of the covenant. The old covenant, that is, back to orthodoxy, back to observing statutes and ordinances that God gave them, not for salvation. It's not about that. It's about bringing them back to where they should be as opposed to idolatry. And in doing so, he has accomplished the purpose of the cycle, and then restoration can follow. How will this happen? Well, the past examples, you saw rebels perishing, and you saw a restored generation moving in without idols. That's what we saw every time. Bad guys wiped out, the resulting remnant, the remaining remnant, allowed to go in. Now, the problem is that once they went in, they made all the same mistakes again. In this case, he says that he will keep, in verse 38, he will purge the rebels... That is, those who are the idolaters. And they will leave the lands they're in 
but they won't get into Israel. Now, how does that work? Remember, the restoration means everyone who's a Jew on earth has to be there. And he said, I'm going to take the ones who are rebels out of where they are, but he's not putting them in the land. And yet everyone who is a Jew has to be in the land. They're going to die. (laughs) That's what he's saying. They're going to come out of the land. They're going to be drawn out, but they're not going to be allowed in. They're going to die before the restoration. So what he's just said is the rebels don't make it into the kingdom. They don't, they're not coming in. They're going to get drawn into the melee. They're going to be part of the turmoil. They're going to be purged through that turmoil and then at the end not make it into the kingdom because they weren't saved, as we would say. All right, we now get a scene, a brief little glimpse of that coming moment of restoration. This is a taste of what you're going to learn in future chapters. So this is where the cycle will end for Israel. Verse 39. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve everyone his idols, but later you will surely listen to me, and my holy name you will profane no longer with your gifts and with your idols. For on my holy mountain, on the high mountain of Israel, declares the Lord God, there the whole house, notice that, no one missing, the whole house of Israel, all of them will serve me in the land, there I will accept them. Now notice who's there. Who's accepting them? The Lord. So you're seeing implicit here the two things we said we had to see. All of them and the Lord there with them. Okay, All of them will serve me in the land. There I will accept them. There I will seek their contributions and the choicest of, their, of your gifts with all your holy things. As a soothing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered. I will prove myself holy among you in the sight of the nations. And you will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the land which I swore to give to your forefathers. There you will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil things that you have done. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways or according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. All right, so he's describing at a high level what's coming in terms of restoration. This is the kingdom period. Now there's a fundamental question that he doesn't address here that we get later in the book, which is how do you get Israel to a point where you're sure no one's ever going to revert back to idolatry? How do we get that out of this outcome when the earlier ones didn't do that? Hold that thought. Meanwhile, he tells them, this will be what you'll start doing. You'll start bringing all your gifts to me, not to the high places. And I'll be there with you, and it'll be a great relationship, as you can see. You'll know that I'm the Lord, and we'll be in communion together. But interestingly, the Lord adds that the people of Israel will have a lasting memory of how they disobeyed and dishonored the Lord in those prior generations. It's moments like this in the text of Scripture, and there's others I could point you to, and we'll get to some of them, that let you know that memories of some kind persist into eternity, which help us with perspective and appreciation for God's grace. That is, it makes sense when you think about it. How much more would the kingdom uh, of, of Israel, Israel in the kingdom, praise the Lord for His mercy and grace and His love, knowing their past history? He even says that. He says in the text, they will know that I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways. So, uh, now again, I'm not suggesting that our, our countenance will be down, that we'll be in misery over these memories. But I do think it's important to understand that for the same reason they loathe their past as much as they appreciate the grace of God when they consider what they did and what He's done. And that is to the glory of God, ultimately, that we aren't uh, oblivious to the fact that you know, we've received something we didn't deserve. 
And I, so it's important that we don't think that when you get into the kingdom that somehow our memories and personalities and all the rest are wiped and we're sort of rebooted and we don't know what happened before we showed up and we're like Adam in the garden. That's not realistic and that's not biblical. Um, we have identities, they carry over. We have memories to some extent, they carry over. All of that is useful to God in developing a relationship for us there that honors and glorifies Him for who He is and what He's done. And yet, it's a great time. <laughs> it's a great place, you know, in general terms, we know it's a good thing to be there. So, last verse, verse 44, the Lord adds that the people of Israel will finally know He is the Lord. That the judgment that began in the wilderness... Thousands of years earlier, continued into the Babylonian captivity, uh, goes all the way through the times we've lived through and are, are current, all the way up to the intense judgment of tribulation. They'll be able to look back on that entire history, and they'll come out of it recognizing who the true Lord is, and that all of that was done to bring them to that moment. They'll have a perspective that has history behind them. And they'll know that He did not deal with us the way He should have, He dealt with us by grace. Little interesting historical footnote. This verse, verse 44, was the very last verse that John Calvin gave commentary on before he died. He did his last dictation and then died at his bed. And for what it's worth, this is where he ended his biblical commentary, was verse 44 of chapter 20 of Ezekiel. Lord, thank you, Father, again for your grace, your mercy, for the time you uh, patiently let us uh, work through our own disobedience in our life and our own rebellion at times, Father, and yet you're right there with us. You don't walk away and you don't... You don't give up, and uh, even as you might bring discipline, it's all for the good purpose of restoring us. And we know that by grace, Father, we just can't sin our way out of your love. Not that we want to, not that that's our goal, but some days it may feel like that to you. We thank you, Father, for the grace that never stops. We thank you that you loved your people so much that you held them close to you even when they ran away, and that you do that even now for your church. And we are so thankful for it. Help us to take what we learned here, Father, and to communicate the truth of your restoring grace and love to others and to help them understand the future that's right around the corner. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.